Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you um, that we can be looking at your word now, um, at your word about your son and about what he has done for us. Uh, and we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we um, read together, as we think together, um, we pray that you help us see more clearly um, the things that he has done uh, and the great benefits that we have received uh, as a result. Uh, help us to think rightly about you, about each other, and about ourselves. Uh, help us to therefore live rightly before you, uh, and help us to appreciate more and more uh, the wonderful blessings that you've given us in Jesus. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at what I'd said was the central concept in the Bible's explanation about what the death of Christ achieved. And you remember that that was penal substitution. Uh, and today we're looking at two other very important theological concepts that shape the way the Bible teaches us about the cross. And they are propitiation and justification. Right, I'll explain them as we go along, but they are all, they're both found in the main passage that we're looking at today. First thing we'll talk about is propitiation. The word propitiation means a sacrifice that takes away wrath. Right? A sacrifice that takes away wrath. Now, it's also used for mercy seat in the Old Testament because that's where the, uh, the sacrifice was made, but we don't have time to, to, to look at it today. Uh, but we'll concentrate on the big definition, the sacrifice that takes away wrath. Now, the presupposition of propitiation is that there is wrath to be propitiated. God must be angry. But hang on, you say, that kind of like makes God some kind of irate ogre, doesn't it? Surely the God of the Bible is a God of love, not of anger. Why are you talking about propitiation? That must be what the publishers of two hymn books in America wanted to, were thinking when they wanted to change the words of in Christ alone from that line where it says, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change it to, the love of God was magnified. And some people have, well, you can understand sometimes, because sometimes people have very bad experiences of, of angry human beings. You know what it's like, don't you? And when human beings are angry, we often get out of control. We, we, we sin and, and we say and do things that hurt and damage other people and often the people that we love. And we can act in very unfair and unloving ways. And if that is your experience of anger, then I can understand why you recall from the idea of an angry God. But if God were wrathful, then it wouldn't be like human anger, would it? It would be perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly controlled. In fact, it would be perfectly consistent with love. Love means caring. If God were to be angry with my sin, it would be because that he really cares about the fact that I don't treat you properly. If God were to be angry with my sin, it would be that he really cares about the fact that I don't treat him properly. If God were to be angry with my sin, it wouldn't be because he doesn't love Quite the opposite. If God was angry about sin, if he is rightly angry about sin, it's because he cares. And he will punish sin with perfect justice, not out of hatred or indifference, but holy love. So is that the case? 
Is God angry with human beings? Well, come with me to chapter 1, verse 8, 18 of Romans. On the page before this, chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans. Here's what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And then Paul goes on, who wrote this part of the Bible, Paul goes on to, to show what humankind has done to deserve this. We, we failed to treat God as God. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've worshipped and created, uh, we, we worshipped the, the created things instead of the creator. And God is so good, God is so holy, to, to, to fail to treat him properly, that is just the worst thing anyone can do. And yet the next two chapters of Romans actually show that that is what we all do. It's a universal thing. Both Jew and Gentile have sinned against God. The Jews who have the law have broken it. Those who don't have the law, they've sinned against the conscience and the light they have. Everyone will be judged by God perfectly fairly. No one will be able to be say at the last day that God hasn't been fair to me, but... God judging justly means that everyone deserves God's wrath. His anger will work out in a personal, judicial, measured, impartial, and appropriate punishment for sin. Is God angry with human beings? Well, yes, he is. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And you go through the argument that Paul makes and you get to chapter 3, verse 10, and it concludes that, well, actually, there is no one righteous, not even one. Humankind has placed itself under God's wrath. But remember, this talk's not primarily about God's wrath, but how God turned aside that wrath. It's about God's propitiation. Now, again, propitiation is not necessarily a popular thing. For two reasons. One, sometimes people can't deal with an angry God. We've already talked about that. But secondly, they also think sometimes that propitiation is unbecoming of God. Remember, propitiation is the turning aside of wrath, isn't it? A sacrifice that turns aside wrath. And, and there were many so-called gods in ancient times that demanded various sacrifices to keep them happy. And if you make those sacrifices, then their wrath is propitiated, and then you'll be okay. Now, you still get that kind of thing today, don't you? Uh, I read on the internet... Uh, about property developers in Penang in the 90s who erected shrines and performed rituals to propitiate guardian spirits in local places known as Karaman or Datokong. And I'm sure that's still happening. Is God like that? An angry spirit that you have to make a sacrifice to, to keep him happy? Well, no, he's not like that at all, is he? All these spirits are requiring sacrifices to for people to keep them happy, to propitiate them. But look carefully at Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. That's where we find that propitiation word there. Romans 3, 25. That's our main passage today. What's the difference in Romans 3, 25? Notice who does the propitiating. It says, God put that is Christ, forward as a propitiation by his blood. You notice that? Who does the propitiating? It is God himself, isn't it? The angry party is the one who takes the initiative to assuage his own anger. Isn't that both amazing and unique? It's like that because the very same holy love that is responsible for God's anger 
is the love that causes him to take the initiative to a station. Propitiation is not saying propitiation makes God love us. God loved us before the foundation of the world. That's why he provided the propitiation for us. And how does God propitiate his anger, his rightful anger against us? Well, look at verse 25 again. It's about Christ Jesus at the end of 24, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. God presented Christ as a propitiation by his blood, that is, by his death. Right? Remember we said last week that penal substitution was the center point for the doctrine of atonement. That's, uh, uh, that's the doctrine of the cross. And, uh, and you see that applied here, isn't it? Propitiation happens because of penal substitution. Remember penal substitution? Penal means to do with punishment. Substitution means you replace one with someone else. And we saw that Christ was our penal substitute because he died to take our punishment. And when he took the punishment for our sin, then God's anger against the sin is satisfied because the sin has been punished. God put forward Christ as a propitiation. Jesus took our place under God's wrath on our behalf. And you remember from last week, the spiritual undergirding of that was our union with Christ, that we're united with him. And so our sin, our punishment under God's wrath is shared with him, and he has borne it to completion. God provided the propitiation at the cross. Now, that's not the only passage we could look in the New Testament about propitiation. Uh, there's other passages we could go to. Uh, we could have gone to Hebrews 2.17. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. You can look it up later if you just want to jot it down. Or 1 John 2.22, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with Father, Jesus the righteous. Jesus is the righteous one who, 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 who advocates for us, who pleads for us, who pleads our cause with the Father. And how does he do that? What's the basis? Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. Or 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as the propitiation for our sins. So propitiation is the teaching of the New Testament. Remember those two hymn committees that wanted to change in Christ alone? Uh, Here's what the songwriter uh, Keith Getty said about this in an interview. He said, we believe altering the lyrics will remove an essential part of the gospel story as explained through scripture. The main thread of what we see revealed through the Old and New Testament is the need for man to be made right with God. The provided path towards reconciliation came through Christ's predetermined and perfect sacrifice on the cross, satisfying God's wrath once and for all. The two hymnal committees wanted to change the lyrics to focus on how Christ's death on the cross magnifies God's love for the world, and indeed God's love was magnified on Calvary's hill. Yet the way this occurred was through Christ doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, shedding his own blood, his own perfect blood, to atone for our sins. That's right, isn't it? It's because that Christ has done that, that shows us the wonderful love of God. So what does propitiation mean for me? What does it mean for you? It means that if I belong to Jesus, if I have been united with him by faith, then God is not angry with me anymore. Isn't that good? God is not angry with me anymore. I might feel like he is angry for some reason or other, but he's not angry with me anymore. Yes, I deserved God's anger, 
but God is not angry with me anymore. So if you forget everything from the first half of this talk, just remember this. Propitiation means that God is not angry with me anymore. For on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Well, the second big concept I want us to explore today is that of justification. Uh, we had a whole seminar on that last year, so we're not going to go to address all the issues and all the controversies, but it's an important topic. Martin Luther said the church stands or falls by the doctrine of justification. And the word justify comes from the law courts, uh, and it means to declare righteous, right? It means to be found not guilty. It, it's like being found not guilty by the courts, but it's a little bit more than that. It, it, it's not only being declared not guilty, but being declared righteous, good, in the right. That makes sense? All right. To be justified is really, really important because God is not only our creator, he is our judge. And all of us are going to face that judge one day, and we need to know what is the verdict the judge is going to pass down on our lives. You want to know that, don't you? Will he say guilty of sin and therefore faces just judgment, that wrath we were talking about before? Or will he say that we are justified? righteous. Which way is it going to be? Well, let's go back to that passage just now in Romans chapter 3. Remember how Paul's been arguing that everyone, both, both a Jew and Gentile, deserve God's wrath? Now down in verse 20 he says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, even if you work really, 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 really hard to obey God's law, you will never be justified in that way. You will never do it well enough. What the law does is make you realize that you are a sinner. Because you know you don't keep it. Not, not properly, not from the heart. So you can't get justified, you can't get declared righteous by observing the law no matter how hard you try. There is no one that God's going to look at at that final day and say, hmm, I've had a look at your life and you've actually done a really good job of keeping the law. You've done perfectly well. Look, I find you righteous. Come, enter my eternal glory, O righteous one. No one's going to be good enough for that. But then Paul says, in verse 21, there is another way of getting that status, righteous. And how can we as sinners get that not guilty verdict on the day of judgment? Well, look in verse 20. Well, look at verse 24 and 25. All right? Verse 24 and 25. Verse 21, I'm going to take you through a bit more. Verse 21 tells us that there's another way of doing it. Verse 22, it comes through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe that it's both Jew and Gentile because. All of sin, both Jew and Gentile, they fall short of the glory of God. None of us are going to be good enough. But look at verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift. Grace means unmerited favor. It means God treating us in a way that we don't deserve. Far, far better than we deserve. So our declaration of not guilty, of righteous, of innocent, at the last day that we couldn't get, no matter how much we tried, 
That's coming as a free gift. Isn't that amazing? Can't get justified by doing things like observing the law, but you can have it as a gift. That is grace. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. We get justified as a gift, but only because Jesus paid for it. We are justified by God as a gift, verse 24 continues, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Right? We'll look at the idea of redemption next week. Tim will take you through that. So uh, let's not, not steal the thunder. Right? Uh, but let me just tell you that the redemption means rescue or release at a price. And the price is borne by the one doing the rescuing. You see, for us to be justified, God paid a terrible price. And he did so at the cross. And the price that was paid was that Jesus bore his wrath on our behalf. That's what we talked about earlier. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation through his blood. Propitiation makes justification possible. When God's wrath against sin has been satisfied, we can be declared righteous. And God is just even though declaring us not guilty. Because the cross shows that sin has been punished. And God never swept it under the carpet. He never said, the wrong things I do to you and the wrong you do to God don't matter. They do. But Jesus took the punishment in our place. Penal substitution. He bore God's wrath for us. Propitiation. So God can look at us and say, not guilty. Righteous. Justification. And he can do all that without compromising on his justice. And so God is shown to be righteous because he deals justly with sin. Not only does he deal justly with our sin, he, he deals justly with the sin of the believers who came before Christ. And you see that from the middle of verse 25. Uh, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Right before Jesus came and died, there were believers, people like Abraham, who we read about in the Old Testament reading. Uh, they were trusting in God's promises, isn't it? Uh, they didn't know Christ, but they believed that God's promises that were ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And we saw in our Old Testament reading that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God said, you are righteous. Now, if you read Genesis, it's very clear that Abraham was a sinner. You can't hide that. But God declared him to be righteous. How does God do that? Well, that's up in the air in the Old Testament. It looks like God is unjust. But once Jesus had died for Abraham's sins, then the answer is obvious. Jesus has taken the punishment for Abraham. Still, God didn't sweep it on the heat. He just put it on hold until Jesus came. And God propitiated his wrath. And God was shown to be righteous. And God has shown that he done the right thing uh, in, in, in uh, declaring Abraham to be righteous. And the same things apply to us and people after Christ. How can God forgive some people and still be just? How can say God say not guilty to you and me even if we are guilty? Because Jesus took our guilt. Because in his death it is paid for. God shows us, verse 26, his righteousness at the present time. So he might be just and the justifier of sinners. Does that make sense? 
Okay. But it's not all sinners who are justified, is it? Who are the ones who are justified? Well, have a look at verse 25 again. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Or look at verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus. So the propitiation of the cross applies to those who have faith in Jesus. Therefore, we are justified by faith. That is, faith in Christ. And verse 28 reminds us that this faith, one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. There is not faith plus works. And so we say we are justified by faith alone. We're justified by faith alone. So there's the big thing, isn't it? Our declaration of being not guilty on that last day is from faith, faith alone, not anything else. So what does it mean to have faith? Well, faith is trusting in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. That's what faith is, isn't it? It means relying on him and his promises in Christ and that alone for our salvation. Faith means trusting in God and the promises he gives to us in the gospel. There are, however, a few misconceptions about faith and justification that we need to clear up. The first misconception about faith, and in talking about saving faith, is that it is simply intellectual assent. Right? Faith in Christ, faith in someone, is more than just saying, yes, I believe he is trustworthy. Right? It's actually trusting him. And relying on him. Right now you're exercising faith in your chair. Right? You are trusting it. You're relying on it to keep you off the ground. Now that's different from someone just saying, well, I think that chair, I do believe that chair could hold me up. But thank you, I'd rather stand and listen to the sermon. Right? That's different, isn't it? Intellectual assent says, yes, yes, I believe it's true. I don't want to do anything about it. And some people say that about Jesus, but that is not saving faith. I had two friends in medical school who for a long time said, yes, I know that it's true. I know Jesus rose from the dead. I've looked at the evidence and da, da, da. I believe it's true, but I don't want to follow Jesus. There's two of them. One of them put his faith in Jesus about a year or two later and his life was transformed. Five years later, the other one committed suicide and as far as I know, never put his faith in Jesus. Faith is not just intellectual assent to some truths some statements, it is personally trusting in and relying on God and the promises that he gives to us in the gospel. Secondly, faith is not something that earns us our justification or makes us worthy of it. It is simply the way we receive it. Now this is very, can get a bit confusing here, isn't it? Because sometimes people believe they will go to heaven because they believe. And if you ask them, well, why should God accept you on the last day? They'll say, because I believe in him. Well, that's that's right in a sense, isn't it? Because we're justified by faith. It's not your work, your faith that saves you. But on the other hand, when you give that kind of answer, it may be that you're missing something big. Because faith is only the way that we receive justification. It is not the grounds for justification. Let me give you an analogy. Imagine... 
Tim was a really rich man. Okay, just imagine, huh? Okay. And imagine that you were struggling. Now, suppose he was so incredibly generous that he put 10 million ringgit into your bank account. Right? And whenever you need money, you just take out your ATM card, go to the machine, and psh, out it comes. Right? Now, if I said to you, how come you're so rich right now, what would you say? Would you say, I'm really rich because I've got this ATM card that anytime I just go to the machine, and out comes the money. Do you say that? Or do you say, I have all this money because Tim was so generous that he put 10 million ringgit into my bank account. You talk about Tim, wouldn't you? Right? Because the ATM card is just the instrument by which you draw out the money. And oh, it's true. No ATM card, no cash. Right? Don't put the card in, you're not going to get no cash. No matter how many buttons you can press in the machine, right? you're not going to get it. But the ATM card is not the one that's in the end responsible for giving you the money. It's not the grounds for it. It came through the grace of your friend. And friends, faith is the instrument by which we receive justification. It's like the ATM card, right? No, no, no faith, no justification. Yes. But what really makes us justify, the actual basis for that justification, the only reason why there's anything in the account in the first place, is the perfect life and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. It's the fact of penal substitution. It's the fact of propitiation. It's the redemption that we have in him. It is the grace of God that is given to us through him. Faith is the open hand that says, look, I, I cannot earn it. I don't deserve it. But I trust in Jesus and God's provision for me in him. And I rely completely on Jesus and what he has done to get me there. Does that make sense? Let's have a look now at a couple of objections uh, to justification by faith alone. Uh, the objections are very similar to the ones that we looked at last week to penal substitution, uh, and there are more that will overlap more so, uh, but just let me just look at two of them uh, this morning. Uh, first of all, that justification by faith alone uh, is legal fiction. Uh, the whole question of legal fiction comes up again, and even more so this time because of the forensic nature of justification, isn't it? Right? That is, God declares you guilty, righteous, but you're actually, sorry, God declares you not guilty, he declares you righteous, but actually you're sinful. So God is bluffing, isn't he? He's an unjust judge. There you are, you're sinful, God declares you righteous. Okay. Once again, remember what I said about doctrine of penal substitution last week? It applies exactly the same thing here, because underlying it is the doctrine of union with Christ. We are united with Christ by faith. When we put our trust in Christ, Holy Spirit unites us with Jesus. We are one with him. We are considered with him. We are considered together. And if we are united with Christ spiritually, all our sins are shared with him. All his righteousness is shared with us. And the death he paid for us by his penal substitutionary death has propitiated God's wrath for us. And our sins are dealt with and paid for. The righteousness that we share with him, well, that is the basis on which God says you are righteous. God says you are righteous. He doesn't say you are righteous in yourself, but you are righteous in Christ, considered with him. And because we are in Christ, God can say to us, you are righteous. And he's not bluffing. 
because that is the spiritual reality of who you are in Christ. In and of yourself, miserable sinner. In Christ, righteous. But that's not legal fiction. That's a spiritual reality that comes through union with Christ. Secondly, some people say justification means that, or justification by faith alone means that you can just simply go and live the way you like. Justification is by faith, not by works, so no need to do good works. In fact, no need to avoid sin, no need to grow in holiness, no need to try and obey God. Just, just have faith, just believe. Well, last week we looked at a very similar argument against penal substitution, didn't we? Uh, and we saw that the very same spirit that unites us with Christ and therefore enables penal substitution to happen is the spirit who motivates us and changes us. Uh, this same spirit is the spirit who, who, who gives us faith to trust in Christ in the first place. So let me answer it from a different angle this time, uh, but from the angle of faith. The Bible tells us that faith without works is dead because true faith will always produce good works. Good works are a symptom of faith. If good works are not there, then you have to question, is faith really there or not? Uh, but works don't help you get justified. You are justified by faith. And so you've got God's grace, right? Through faith leads to justification by faith. And the very same faith that gives you justification also will lead you to do good works. Right? So good works will be a symptom. Have to be there. Right? But good works are not contributing to your justification. Does that make sense? Doesn't contribute. Justification is by grace through faith. Good works is a symptom. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, said this, and this is worth writing down. He said, we are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Right? We are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Right? Remember it that way. Right. Now, we know the results of being justified for the last day. Right? That's the most important thing, isn't it? God declares us righteous, and so we're not enjoying his, we, we will not uh, be under his wrath, but enjoy the blessing of his presence, and his love, uh, and his glory forever. That's the big thing. But let me ask, what about today? How does justification by faith and propitiation change the way things are right now? And I suggest there are implications for us in the here and now in three different ways. Uh, first of all, it changes our view of God. If all we had was Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, then, well, then we would either be scared of him, or we would hate him, or we would make ourselves deny him or ignore him. Right? We'd either be scared of him because we know he's right, or we hate him because we know we're wrong, so we go the other way. Or we, 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 we make ourselves, no, I can't, I can't handle this, this is too much. Uh, let's pretend it's not there. You know what I mean? Right? Or you know, we might keep on desperately trying to do good things to placate him and occasionally try not to do bad things so that he won't get angry with us. And if we thought we were succeeding, then, then we would become self-righteous and proud because we're doing it. Or on the other hand, we'd also be very defensive of anything that would make it apparent that we're not succeeding. And we have to keep on trying to justify ourselves. 
Most of us would know that we don't succeed and we end up living in mild dejection or terrible despair depending on how sensitive our conscience is. And if that is too difficult or undesirable for one reason or other, then the other option would be just to give up. We could either pretend that God's wrath wasn't real and just remake God in our own image, the kind of God that we like, or we just deny that God exists at all. And as we know, none of those options are good ones. But we don't have to go down any of those paths. Because of the cross, we can safely acknowledge our own sinfulness and the rightness of God's wrath because we're already safe. We know that God's wrath has been propitiated and that we are justified. We can accept and appreciate the wonderful truth that God loves us and considers us righteous in Jesus. In the midst of our realizing our own sinfulness, we can marvel at his mercy and glory in his grace. We don't need to be scared of God anymore. We don't need to pretend that he's different from how he is. But we can embrace his loving provision for us that he's given us in the cross. We can look at God differently because we know that he is our father who has shown that he loves us so much that he gave Jesus to be the propitiation for us. We can look at God differently because we're not scared of the judgment because we know the judge has told us the verdict in advance. We know the answer from the courtroom at the end of the age. And brother and sister, relating to a God who loves you and accepts you and is right in doing so is very different from relating to a God whom you think is angry with you and is always out to punish you, isn't it? Listen to the testimony of Martin Luther. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. He says a little bit further, he wrote on, he says this. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise through open gates. Propitiation means that God isn't angry with me anymore. Justification means God accepts me as righteous in Jesus. And that completely changes the way I view God. Secondly, it changes the way we relate to others. Justification by faith alone means that I, oh, there's actually no room for self-righteousness as I relate to other people, is there? If I'm trying to earn my way to heaven, then I'll be, I'll be happier if I'm better than you, just in case God marks on the curve, you know? I want to be on the right side of that uh, bell, bell curve. Right? So I keep on be comparing myself to other people to see how I'm going. 
And to give myself hope, I must convince myself that I'm better than, than, than most other people. Or at least than you. But that is not the case with justification by faith, is it? I know I'm a sinner, no need to compare. I know that God will accept me, not because I'm better than anyone else, but, but because of his son. So I don't need to compete in my own mind, make myself better. I don't have to compete in church to make other people think I'm better either. If we don't believe in justification by faith, what we might believe in is some kind of justification by consensus opinion. You know, if people at church generally think I'm okay, then God must think I'm okay. Uh, you know, you're never actually going to say that, right? But uh, sometimes you might think that. And so all you do is to show people that you're really spiritual or you're really gifted or you're really good or, or whatever. And you think that if you're justified, that if people think that you are justified. But justification by faith undermines all that. God accepts you because of Jesus, not because people in church think you're spiritual. And that frees you to be real. Be able to acknowledge the struggles you face. You don't have to pretend you've got it all together. You don't have to pretend you've got all these gifts. You don't have to pretend. It's okay. You're secure. You're justified by faith alone, through Christ alone. And thirdly, it changes how we see ourselves. If we know that God has been propitiated and we have been justified, then we are secure. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So we don't need to fret. We don't need to worry. If we've been justified, then our eternal future is guaranteed. And you know, if the eternal future is guaranteed, then you can put up with things in this life, can't you? Furthermore, our self-worth is not derived from our performance or position. No, 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 no. We get that from the fact that God loved us so much that he gave his son to be a propitiation for us. Don't have to perform or have any positions in order to have a self-worth. More than that, we are free. We are free to acknowledge our sin because in God's eyes we are accepted and righteous at the very same time. Don't have to cover up our sins even to ourselves. We can acknowledge them, we can face them, we can bring them to God in confession and prayer, but we don't have to hide them anymore. Because we have been justified, God's wrath has been propitiated, and there is great freedom in that that gives us actually the opportunity to change. So as we close, let me ask you, where do you stand on all this? As a pastor, I often ask people, why, why should God accept you into his eternal kingdom? Some people talk about their own goodness, things they do, or the good things they do, or the bad things they don't do, and whether they're better than other people. Well, that's not trusting Jesus for salvation, is it? If you're trying to go on your own goodness, then, then please repent. Stop trying to be saved. Stop trying to have your own righteousness because you can't and the wrath of God will fall on you in the end. But instead, put your trust in Jesus and him alone. Be united with Jesus by faith, by trusting in him and enjoy the righteousness that you can have in him. And if you are in Christ, he is your savior, he is your Lord and your life is showing evidence of that faith, then be encouraged. You can know for sure that you are right with God now and that you will be with him in glory forever. You can be sure that God is not angry with you anymore. How could he be if he himself has provided the propitiation to take his anger away? 
you can be sure that you are justified, declared not guilty by God, and, and that verdict is based on Christ and not your own performance. And you can be sure that at the last day, when you stand before God as your judge, he will look at you and say, righteous in my son. What a privilege. What a joy. What amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. We thank you for expressing that through the penal substitutionary death of your son. We thank you that you have propitiated that wrath that we rightfully deserve in him. And thank you that you have justified us by faith in him. Having united us by faith with him and giving us that righteousness that we, that we don't have but comes from sharing with him. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you accept us perfectly in Christ. We thank you that we can be assured that on that last day you will find us to be righteous because of him. Our Father, we pray that we would be more and more confident in that and more and more grateful for that. May the way we relate to you and to each other and the way we see ourselves be shaped entirely by the wonderful truths of your gospel. And if there's anyone here who is still not come to the point of trusting in Christ for salvation, we pray that you have mercy on them, that you send forth your spirit and bring them to the faith in Jesus. Unite them with him by faith, that they may know the joy of justification. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.